0: You are listening to the Reality Church Ventura podcast, a collection of sermons from our weekly Sunday gatherings. To learn more about reality, visit us online at realityventura.com. Thank you, Billy. Uh, my name is Jason, and I have the privilege of leading a community group with my wife, Kelly. And today's scripture passage is from Matthew chapter 25 verses 31 through 46 from the NIV. Verse 31, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, when do we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick, or in prison, and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment by their righteousness to eternal life. This is God's word.
1: Thanks, Jason. We've since April been looking at the parables of the gospels in a series we've been calling the stories of Jesus, and we come to the end today. Particularly, we've spent the last few weeks looking at the parables about the day of Christ's return, asking, how then should we live? It's a question every single one of us must ask, regardless of who you are, where you're from, So let's pray together and let's ask the Spirit of God to quicken us and awaken us to these truths that we might be changed today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that because of your great love for us, you have not left us unprepared. You've not left us without hope. You've not left us without the invitation to eternal life because of the work of Jesus. I pray for those who do not yet know you that today they would trust you. And I pray for your church that we would reflect you and your love to this lost and needy world so that many would also find salvation in Christ. God, we pray that you would cause us to be men and women who are alert, who are awake, and who are ready to give an account for our lives on that last day, because our lives are built on the firm foundation of Jesus. Spirit of God, speak, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Well, there's a story told many years ago of a farmer in a midwestern state who strongly disliked the church and anything having to do with god in fact when he plowed his field on a sunday morning he would shake his fist at the church and the people who passed by him on their way to worship you might have seen that on the 101 this morning (laughs) One October came, and this farmer, despite his behavior and his strongly held opinions, got to observe his finest crop ever, the best in the entire county. And when his harvest was complete, he actually had the audacity to place an advertisement in the local paper, which belittled the Christians for putting their faith in God. Near the end of the advert, in the local paper, he wrote, quote, faith in God must not mean much if someone like me can prosper in October. Well, the Christians in that community, of course, saw and read his words in the paper and decided to give a short but sharp reply of their own. And so in the next edition of the town paper, their ad simply read, God does not settle his accounts in October. Now, it's a short, humorous, but also sobering story because it reminds us of two truths that our parable before us teaches us today. One, that regardless of how well things are going for you today, one day we will all have to settle our own account for our lives. And number two, the way that we live in the present reveals whether that day should be feared or welcomed. There are many today, perhaps even some of you in this room who are living totally unprepared to give an account for your life, for your account. To be settled. You might even mistake present temporary success or prosperity for eternal security. Perhaps even the lack of bad things happening to you right now has been interpreted in your mind as an endorsement on the way you live your life. You might be thinking, well, I just do whatever I want and I'm physically healthy, the money's rolling in, it's fine. Like, I I don't need to worry about anything. Well, the Bible says that this is foolishness. So the question for you today is, how should you then live? But it's also a question for the church. Many of you have chosen to follow Jesus, and you're entrusting that final day to him. But what should you be doing in the present? As we've learned over the last few weeks and months, the answer for the Christian is not to bury your head in the sand and say the world's so bad, I'm just gonna withdraw until one day Jesus returns. No, that's not the case and it's never the case in scripture. So the question is the same for you and for me. How should we then live? What should we be doing in the present? And what does the future have to do with how we live now? Well, this parable, this final parable we're studying, speaks to us all. Because the decisions we make in our life determines the direction of our life. And here in this final parable, Jesus shows us which decisions matter most. This parable is interesting because in almost all of the short stories that we've studied in this series, Jesus has mainly been teaching us using metaphorical language, such as a faithful servant. What does a faithful servant do? Feed all the other servants in the house. Or the faithful bridesmaids. What does that look like? Well, they kept their lamps with oil, well lit, ready for the wedding celebration, But in this final parable, it's really just a short simile of the sheep and the goats. Jesus tells us unmetaphorically and with crystal clarity how we should live in light of his return. And so this text provides us with three profound truths. First of all, how should you live? You should live knowing that there will be a judgment. Friends, I want this to be as clear as possible. How should you live? You should live knowing that there is a judgment. In Matthew's account, Jesus does not give us a detailed outline of eternal judgment or eternal life, but he gives evocative pictures, not only of these eternal destinations, but who will go there? Look at verses 31 to 34 again. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And down in verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So here we have this brief parable about the separation of the sheep and the goats, which demonstrates not only a difference between the groups in their appearance, I don't know much about animals, but I know sheep and goats look different, but it is also a difference of nature. And herein lies an important lesson. Who is going to eternal life or who is going to eternal destruction? Well, the Bible is clear that all of us have been wonderfully and beautifully made by God. But we are also, through our own choice, horribly tainted by sin. We are fallen in our nature. But in God's grace, He gives all of us the opportunity to have a new nature, a new identity that leads to a new destiny. Paul the Apostle speaks of this new nature in his letter to the Ephesian church. He says in chapter 2, like the rest, we, all of us, were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. Here's why that's important. I make this clarification because it levels the playing field for all of us. When it comes to final judgment and where you end up in eternity, no one person, has a natural advantage over another. It's not as if like, oh, you grew up in a good home, so your chances of ending up in eternal life with the sheep is like pretty high, like getting into a university or something. Or like, hey, you had a rough background, and like, man, you're pretty much like in goat territory, like at this point, like it's just clear. When it comes to human nature, none of us, has a a natural, personal advantage over the other. The Bible levels the playing field. For all of us have sinned. All of us have sinned against God. But in his love, he has made a way for all of us to be changed, for all of us to have a new nature. But we must choose we must choose. As we will see when Jesus elaborates, the distinction between the sheep and the goat is a metaphor for the decisions people have made regarding Christ and others. So here's what this means. For those who accept this invitation of Jesus, it means inheriting the glorious kingdom of God. It means that when you think about the future, it is not something to fear, but to welcome. A world remade in righteousness, a world of blessedness. This is not a future to fear, but a future to seek. And the gospel makes it possible for our nature to be renewed that we might anticipate that glorious day. And friends, in that sense, the day of judgment is desirable for us. Why? Because it means the end of everything wrong in the world. It means the end of everything messed up and unjust in this world. It means nearness to God forever it means righteousness forever the psalmist in the old testament when he's writing his poetry longs for that day god everything's so messed up around me my paraphrase of course like when are you gonna make everything right he's talking about judgment day the very last book of the bible the book of revelation contains some of the most remarkable Pictures of of this final day. And one of the most beautiful and profound for me is in the final few chapters of that book where we're told for those who receive this invitation, you will stand before the risen Jesus and with his nail-pierced hands, we're told he will wipe away every tear from your eye for there will be no more pain no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more death, no more cancer, no more illness, no more mental health issues, no more war, no more injustice, no more violence, because Jesus Christ is making all things new. That is a day to be sought. It's why we pray, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All of this awaits those who receive that new nature. You become like a sheep, the sheep that have a shepherd. And that imagery is so powerful, and it reminds Many of Psalm 23, even if you weren't raised in a Christian environment, chances are you know Psalm 23 of the great shepherd. It's quoted in in novels and in films. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you, the shepherd, are with me. You set a table before me in the presence of my enemies and I will be in your house forever. you need to know that there will be a judgment. And for those who receive Christ as king, it is a day of righteousness to long for. But this is a choice. In fact, one of the greatest ways that God dignifies us is by giving us a choice and holding us accountable to our choices, even when We choose against him. So let's be clear. A judgment day will come. And we must give an account for our choices. If you do not respond to the light, you choose darkness. If you do not receive the invitation to the feast, you choose to remain hungry. And so... Judgment for those is eternal and sobering. Again, like Jesus has done in all of his parables related to final judgment, he uses striking metaphors to drive home the weight of judgment. For he calls it eternal fire. Eternal fire is the, the negative realm, if you will. It is the absence of of everything that God wants for humanity. That's why the language and the language Jesus uses to describe eternal judgment is lost, darkness, cut off, weeping and gnashing of teeth outside. Because hell is the absence of all that is good and beautiful. And I want you to notice, friends, listen. Hell is not God's intended destiny for any human being. For notice the detail mentioned by Jesus here. This eternal judgment has been prepared for the devil and his angels. It is only through mankind's rejection of God that they will willingly join them. See, here's the logic. Hell is where God must put all the evil out of the world. And if we follow sin and if we choose to follow lies and evil, we will end up where they end up. That's the logic. There will be a judgment. For those who reject God and His grace, God reluctantly underlines and highlights in eternity the choice you make in life. But if you receive, then you anticipate that as a glorious day when all things will be made new. These are weighty teachings. They're meant to warn you away from the darkness and push you towards the light. I know some might say, as many have often said to me, oh, the preacher's just using scare tactics to kind of manipulate me into some decision. Listen, it's only a scare tactic in that sense if it's not true. Let me give you an example. One of my daughters is learning to drive right now. Few things are more frightening than this, I assure you. And when I'm in the passenger seat, my hand is like glued to that little handle. And my right foot is like moving. I can't, it's like involuntary. Break, 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 break. Let, no, no, no. Oh gosh, Lord. Oh man. If, if you want your prayer life to increase, climb aboard. You'll pray like King David in his hour of need. And if any of you remember taking driver's lessons, they show you the videos. You know what I'm talking about? Red asphalt? Oh, you know. (laughs) They're terrifying. Were they using scare tactics as a way to manipulate people? No, they're telling you the truth. You need to be warned. Like, this is what will happen. You need to be aware. You need to be alert. Friends, Jesus is loving us by telling us the truth. How then should I live? Well, you need to live knowing first that there is a judgment. But what are the marks or what are the distinctions between those who are heading in the direction of eternal life or the direction of eternal judgment? Well, secondly, how should you live? You should live knowing that how you treat people absolutely matters. To those on his right, the ones who do not need to fear final judgment, but anticipate glorious life, what are the marks of such a person? Well, it's all demonstrated in the way that they treat people now. Verse 34 to 36. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you, since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Who is Jesus referring to when he describes the scene, or as he will say later, the least of these? Well, clearly it would refer to those in need within the church. And many commentators argue because of the original language that it would even extend beyond the church to those in need across the world. But it's clearly referring to not just any need, but a person in need where when you serve them, you don't really get anything in return, right? You usually don't benefit per se, from visiting somebody who's sick or in prison. But they often cannot give you anything in return. What is Jesus describing here? He is describing not just altruism, he's describing sacrificial love. Love that involves sacrifice. And the point, I suppose, is this. Sacrificial love makes no distinctions in the way the world makes distinctions. See, Jesus said earlier, if you love those who just treat you well, or if you love those who are like yourself, like what difference does that make? Everyone does that. Or if you're just like doing good deeds to get the praise of man, like what's the point? Like Many people are happy to do good works and they'll post it on their social media, like, you know, guys just serving those in need, or as I like to call it, Monday. And everyone's like, oh such an inspiration. (laughs) Feeding on the affirmation. But you don't get the reward of the world when you're visiting and serving in contexts like these. And so in the eyes of the world, we might be tempted to only treat those with kindness that can benefit us. What's in it for me? and ignore the so-called little or needy people. The Bible warns us against ever making the distinction between significant and insignificant people. For true sacrificial love sees all people with needs and seeks to meet them as they are able. In short, we should treat others, especially those in need, as a reflection of Jesus Christ. And he rewards all that is done in his name. And this is consistent with what we find elsewhere in the New Testament. In the Gospel according to John, Jesus said that the way we love one another is the way that the whole world will know that we're legit as Christians that love would be the legacy of the church. He said, by this, that you love one another in the way that I have loved you, all the world will know that you are my disciples. Paul the Apostle, in talking about love and the Holy Spirit gifting us to serve other people, he says in Romans 13 and 14 that love fulfills the law. All that the commands of God in the Old Testament were getting after is this sacrificial love. The book of James in the New Testament says, you know, faith without good works is is a faith in mere profession only. It's, It's dead. But real faith shows itself in good works. Or the apostle John, in his letter, says, the love that God wants us to show is practical and sacrificial. And I want you to to listen to what John says because it not only drives home this point that we reflect God's love when we love others, but it actually makes the connection to judgment day. Listen to what John says in chapter four of his letter. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. And verse 17, notice, this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. To help another person, to serve them sacrificially, no matter how small in the eyes of the world, it is as if you helped the Lord himself. He couldn't have used stronger language. For those of you who serve faithfully in obscurity. For those of you who serve and care for the vulnerable, for those of you, even the conversations that I've had hearing about the way in which God has led you to serve, you need an encouragement today. Those of you who serve the elderly, those of you who serve, many who visit in prisons, caring for the fatherless and the motherless, caring for the orphan, caring for the needy inside and outside of this church and the sick. You might feel that you are serving in the shadows, but according to Jesus, you are serving in the spotlight. He sees, and it matters so much to him that lest you become discouraged, He says, in as much as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. You've done it to me. And so the word to you, friend, is Galatians 6, 9. Do not grow weary in doing good, for in due time you will reap a harvest if you do not lose heart wherever you're tempted to give up in the sacrificial way in which Christ is calling you to love and serve, remember that Christ sees, Sees. Christ empowers. Do not lose heart. These are the very evidences of a life that has been changed by Jesus. And we must hold it as a church in high regard. In contrast, how do we recognize if a person is heading not towards eternal life, but towards eternal destruction? Well, likewise, you can tell in the way that a person lives their life and treats people. Jesus says in verse 41 to 43, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. See, in short, those who produce fruit show that they have their root in Christ. But those who have no fruit and display the opposite of Christ-likeness reveal that they have no root in Christ. Because to know the compassion of Jesus is to show the compassion of Jesus. If you really know Christ and his love towards you, you will love others. It's like gospel math. (laughs) If you truly love God, this is what 1 John is all about. If you love God, you will love others. If you say you love God and you hate other people, is the love of God really in you? Jesus said often in his teaching, you will know others by their what? Fruit, by the way they live their lives. And make no mistake, this judgment at the end is is not merely about how many good deeds did you do, but what kind of person are you? True identity is always the issue. An identity founded on Jesus will show itself in mercy and in love, but an identity founded in anything else will not produce Christ-like love. Your regard towards Jesus and others is the evidence of your identity into eternity. In one case, towards life, and in another case, towards death. But where do we get the confidence? Where do we get the confidence? How should you live? You should live knowing that there will be a day of judgment. You should live knowing that how you treat people absolutely matters. But third, you need to live knowing that Jesus is the source of righteousness. Friends, this passage must not be interpreted apart from everything else Jesus has said about salvation. Namely, that faith in him is what means salvation for us. This passage does not teach salvation by works. If you go out there and do enough good things, Jesus will accept you in the end. This passage does not contradict that we are saved by faith in Christ alone, but rather shows that genuine faith in Christ alone will show itself in the way that we live. And I want to draw your attention to some details here because this is so important that we realize that Jesus is the source of our righteousness. Notice how the righteous, or the sheep, respond to Jesus because there's an element of surprise. Did you notice that? Verse 37 to 40. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Notice the element of surprise. This is not teaching, as some have thought, salvation by works. And that is displayed in the way that the righteous are surprised by the verdict. They're saying, when did we do that? They were not trying to score points. Or if I could put it this way, good works are not the reason for your salvation, they are the result of your salvation. We need to be clear on this friends, write it down. Good works are not the reason for your salvation, they are the result of your salvation. The righteous were not relying on their good works, otherwise they would have been like, well of course, did I score enough? They're like, when did, we, when did we see you? They gave themselves in generous service without thought of merit, because their motivation was love. Their motivation was Christ. In contrast, the wicked are those who refuse loving service and are unaware of their sin in doing so. And notice also with the wicked, there is an element of surprise, verse 44 through 46. The wicked will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick, or in prison, and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life.